Hello everyone and welcome to episode 5 of series 3 of the Wide Open Road podcast, a podcast about athlete transition to life after sport. Today's guest is former professional cyclist, Gracie Elvin. Gracie raced professionally for over a decade. She's a two-time Australian National Road Race Champion, competed at the 2016 Rail Olympics, the 2014 and 18 Commonwealth Games and the 2015, 16 and 17 Road Race World Championships before retiring at the end of 2020, the year that saw many sports thrown into chaos because of COVID. An enforced break from Gracie's usual European racing season last year provided her the opportunity to take a mental break and start to think about longer term priorities away from her sport. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation and the one thing that resonates so beautifully is Gracie's attitude to preparing for life after sport and her approach in 2021 as she plans for what's next. Please enjoy my conversation with Gracie Elvin. Hi Gracie and welcome to the Wide Open Road podcast. It's terrific to see you. In a story you wrote for cyclingtips.com back in May this year, you said retiring is a gift, not just a loss. Describe what you meant by this and can you share some of the things that you did as you prepared for life after cycling? Definitely, yeah. It was really cathartic to write that article and it was a great way for me to reflect just around six months after my last race. It's not just the grief that you go through when you retire from sport. There is a lot of grief, as a lot of athletes can relate to, but it's still an opportunity and that was really what I was getting to in that as athletes and especially for endurance-based athletes, we tend to retire in our 30s because we've hit our peak or, or thereabouts and we want to move on to the next thing in our life. And I think for non-athletic people, you're in your 30s and you're already very much established in your career and maybe you have a family by then and a mortgage and all of the trimmings that come with you know, that kind of life. But athletes, we have this unusual pathway to our 30s and we get to reinvent ourselves once we retire. We have all this life experience of our teenage years and our 20s of being athletes and traveling the world and learning all of the things that make you a good athlete that you're able to transfer into that next part of your life. So it feels like you've got this gap year like you did when you finished year 12, but you have more than a decade of life experience to go with it. So you have this really nice freedom to choose who you want to be going forward instead of being a bit like an unsure 18-year-old. You're a bit more sure of yourself. You know a bit more about what you like and who you are. It's a really nice opportunity to then go, okay, well, what next? I'm still relatively young. I can still make some really cool decisions in my life and, and have a next big adventure. You know, it's funny you say that about in your early 30s and you're retiring and a lot of peers at the same level have probably got law degrees and accounting degrees and have done things and their careers are on an upward trajectory, whereas for a lot of professional athletes, including yourself, I mean, early 30s is not very old when it comes to having to retire from a particular pursuit and then sort of rethink things again and start again. And the one thing that was really interesting when I was researching our conversation today was you mentioned that you were taking the gap year to kind of mentally, as much as physically, but mentally recover from what's been obviously a, a pretty full-on 10 or 12 years of, of travelling around the world competing in, in a pretty brutally tough sport of cycling. So tell me, what have you done over the gap year? What are the things that you've really enjoyed doing that maybe has taken your mind off being a, a retired athlete? But also you wrote the article in May, it's now October. So what's changed and what are some of the things that you may have discovered that you didn't realise uh, back when you wrote the article originally? I think a lot has happened in the last few months for me. I had 
a lot to do this year, but my goal and something that I wrote in the article was that I wanted to be busy but have things to do that didn't require myself to feel like I had a lot of pressure on me and I think that was kind of the key to not just be listless and not have nothing to do but whatever it was that I was doing, it wasn't the next big thing. It was just things to keep me busy and occupied and satisfied in the meantime before the next big thing because I've been trying to be the best at something in the world for my whole adult life I needed a break from that <laughs> so yeah I've been um, finishing my science degree that I started in 2010 so that's been a long time just chipping away and it's great to finally finish off the last few subjects I still work in the cycling union that I co-founded about five years ago so it's been really nice to still be giving back to my sport in that way and be involved and just fun things, spending more time with my friends and family because as cyclists we have to spend six to nine months a year living in Europe because that's where the sport is based. So it's nice to just be back home and feel a little bit more settled for once and say yes to things, say yes to going out before lockdown happened and say yes to going skiing and yes to camping and yes to all sorts of things. So just taking a bit more time there to not feel rushed in the few months that I was usually home and, and spreading out all of that time that I get to spend with friends and family that I've been kind of really missing for the last 10 years. And yeah, just really exploring what my next big thing might be and just kind of having a taster of things that I might like and I just had this instinctual feeling at the start of this year that if I just followed my values and I kept chipping away at things that I was interested in, that the right opportunity would come along. And it kind of actually has. And I've been a lot more involved in the media and I've been doing a lot of commentary for cycling. And I didn't really ever see myself doing commentary or live TV. So that's actually been really fun and something that I haven't quite planned for, but it's making me quite busy now and I'm really enjoying that and it's really replacing some of the race nerves, I guess, because I get a bit nervous. I'm a bit of an introvert, so I'm not actually naturally that outgoing and chatty, but when I get to talk about cycling and especially women's cycling, you can't shut me up. So I get a bit nervous before I have to go on live TV or streams and so it's a nice kind of replacement feeling well it's interesting when you speak about nerves and nervousness that reading about cycling and about the australian summer and the fact that when a lot of australian riders head back across to europe for the i guess for the season proper over there you guys have already got a number of races under your belts whereas the europeans maybe don't have you know maybe they're on their brakes and they're not racing as much and you spoke about nerves and the fact that it was good to get the nerves out of the way by sort of getting some races under your belt before you actually jumped on the plane and headed overseas. And if we talk about the lifestyle of a professional athlete for a second, because I really would love to talk about the studies that you've done over the course of the last 10 years or so whilst you were competing and kind of balancing all of the things you needed to do from a cycling perspective. But can you talk a little bit about the life of a professional cyclist, especially a lot of our listeners may not really understand what a professional cyclist's 12-month life is like. Could you give us a bit of a, an overview of, of what a, a year in the life of a professional cyclist looks like? Sure. Professional cycling, as I mentioned, most of the racing we do is based in Central Europe and the bigger races start in late February, early March and we call a couple of months period there the Spring Classics. 
they're often based in Belgium and Holland. And then into the European summer, we do more tour racing. So we move away from the one-day races and go into multi-day tours, which can be three, five, ten-day stage races. We do the Tour of Italy, which we call the Giro Rosa, which is probably the most famous one. And, and next year, they've finally introduced the Tour de France for women, but unfortunately, I won't be able to do that, but that's really cool. And then the finish of the season ends usually around late September with the World Championships. And the last few years, have actually added a few extra races on top of that in October. So you're already looking at a six-month European calendar. And then for the Australian riders, we have that summer of cycling, as you mentioned. So we have our national championships, the Tour Down Under, and a couple of other races in January. So we have to be super fit from January 1 all the way until October. So it's quite a long year for a professional, especially for the Aussies. And having done it for as long as you did it, as you came towards the end of your career, and obviously COVID through the spanner in the works last year with respect to being able to get out and I suppose have the natural cadence of the of the years that you would have had previously. Did that start to help inform you about maybe your time was up in professional cycling with respect to well, you, you might have had a chance to see the world in different eyes? Definitely, you've really nailed it. I actually went to Europe last year in February, like I usually would, just give myself a few weeks to settle in before the first race back. And I based myself in Spain in a little town called Girona where a lot of cyclists live. So we were getting fit. We went up to Belgium for the first race weekend and there was some rumours about this virus going around the world and it was a bit strange. And then suddenly it was a big deal and races were getting cancelled. We weren't sure what was really going on. And within a matter of a few days, we went from wondering how we're going to get to the next race to wondering how we're going to get back to Australia. So about five of us Australian female riders who live in Girona had a bit of powwow one night following our team management meeting regarding the virus situation and we all just had that feeling like I think we should just go home this seems a lot more serious than we realized and the next day we got on a plane and fled back to Australia so we had one night to pack and to get everything ready we had to leave our apartments full of our personal belongings not sure when we were going to come back so I came back to Australia mid-March last year and it was really unsure whether the whole season was going to be cancelled or not. So I didn't really know how long I was going to be back in Australia, but it turned out to be about four months before they called us back to Europe. So I had that four months at home. I, I took a couple of weeks off just to, you know, breathe a bit and be like, okay, well, might as well have a, a rest. Who knows what's happening? We might get called back in a month or we might not get called back at all. So I just took a little rest and then I just started writing my bike for fun. So I had about three months of just long rides, just a lot of volume, no intensity. There was no point in training too hard. Just they were going to give us, you know, at least a month's notice before the first race, which is enough to ramp up that intensity training if we needed to. So I just really enjoyed long rides on my bike back in Canberra here and just riding for the sake of riding and also just gave me that mental space to be like, okay, well, wow, how do I feel about not racing? How do I feel about my goals being cancelled? How do I feel about the Olympics being postponed? And I had this really interesting reaction after the, the disappointment had worn off. I was actually gaining this energy, even though I was still riding my bike a lot and training a lot. 
I had this mental clarity that I hadn't had for a long time and I just realized that this fog had kind of lifted for me and I could see what my priorities and my values had kind of changed to but I hadn't given myself that opportunity to think about because I was just on the treadmill I guess of the calendar and all the pressures that come with what we do so it was a huge opportunity for me to reassess my career and what I wanted and what next so yeah even though it was difficult I really tried hard to sit with my feelings and understand them and do a lot of writing personally and that was a really nice way to figure it all out. You know, what you just said suggests to me that every athlete needs to have the time and the space to think. I mean, you mentioned before about, you know, you're on the treadmill. And so as a result, I suppose you almost feel like you're on autopilot. You're being told where you've got to be, when you've got to be there, what races you're doing. I suspect everything is centred around training for a particular race or a particular series of races over an extended period. And maybe you don't actually have the time as a professional athlete to actually just take stock. When you come back to Australia on a normal season, clearly you're focusing on rest from October probably towards the end of December. Do you think that, you know, on reflection, that time off just did give you the chance to think, but also perhaps it brought forward the fact that you retired when you did as opposed to had it been a normal year, you may still be overseas now competing? When you were competing, did you ever speak with your peers, especially the peers in the Mitchelton Scott team, which you were involved in, I think, for eight or nine years? So you obviously got to form really close relationships with people in and around the team over an extended period. Did you ever sit down with your peers and talk about what you might do when you finished cycling? It's a topic that comes up, and I think more so in women's sport. We know that we're not going to make millions of dollars. Like there's a handful of sports such as tennis, you know, where they potentially can make a lifetime worth of money, which is awesome. But most other women's sports, it's just not really a reality. Like you said earlier in this podcast, a lot of people have studied or have even had a career already before sport. So it's an easy topic for women to talk about in some ways because we kind of know what each other has studied or is studying or has done for work in the past or is potentially thinking about doing after cycling. So the conversations don't really go towards around when that person's going to retire. Often that's a big question mark for most of us, but there's certainly a bit more certainty about what to do afterwards and I think a lot of women do tend to think that through. And from your perspective, you studied and you're still finalising your degree now. So can you talk a little bit about and describe the fitting in of studying online, I suspect, for a lot of it, especially when you're overseas, and how that 
maybe helped you from a performance perspective about maybe getting some balance and, and having other things outside the sport which allowed you to think about other things as opposed to just being consistently 100% focused on sport all the time? I think, yeah, it's not a new concept. I think a lot of people over many decades now have kind of spruced the importance of having something else when you're an athlete, no matter if you're a man or a woman or, or something. So I remember when I was a junior hearing, I can't even remember what athlete it was at the time, but I do remember someone saying that it was important to have something else. And I, it just kind of stuck with me and then, Knowing that I have, you know, some kind of intellectual capabilities, I knew that it just wasn't quite enough either for me. I call it being brain fit as well as body fit. And it's important to me to also be a little bit brain fit, even if it's not nowhere near where you know you can be. At least using your brain a little bit was always important to me. I think it just added to my self-worth and how I see myself because I'm really proud of being an athlete. But I feel like there's also a little bit of shame around being an athlete because of the way people might see you. So I don't know if it's an ego thing, but it was important to me to show that I could do other things too. So I don't know if that was me or for other people, but it's just something that I felt. But I started my degree in 2010 because I was just at a bit of a crossroads at that point. I was actually a mountain biker back then and all the funding had dried up for that sport. So I knew that I should probably try something else. I always knew I was going to go back to road cycling, so it wasn't so much about sport, but I just kind of think, thought that I should still start setting myself up. That was about three years after I finished year 12, so I had a good chunk of time working as a personal trainer, and that was a really great way for me to gain some social skills and get out of my shell a little bit and make money while I was training to be a cyclist. And having those few years after year 12 was important because I think I changed a lot just in that time in my early adult life and I felt like I was a little bit more ready to then choose what I wanted to do at university I definitely wasn't ready to choose what I was going to study when I was 18 and I think a lot of people feel like that and I'm really glad that my parents didn't push me into going to university just for the sake of it so I applied to the University of Canberra and they're very athlete friendly because they're pretty much next door to the AIS and the Brumbies so all through my school all through the last decade or or more they've been really supportive of me as an athlete and I've done a handful of courses as a regular student face-to-face but I've been able to complete most of my degree online which is really cool that technology has been around for that long now that we can do that and it's only getting better. You just mentioned the fact that the personal training that you did over the course of the couple of years when you first left school allowed you time I suppose to a certain extent to mature and get a bit of worldliness. And I 100% agree with you that when students walk out of school at 17 or 18 and they've got to choose what degree they do and, you know, what are you going to do when you grow up, I think it's a crazy question to ask because so many things change in individuals in a relatively short period of time when they leave school. And so I'm a big believer uh, in going out and getting a job for a year or two and actually spending some time just living before you start to think about what you want to do because it's a big decision to have to make when you're relatively immature in the sense of worldliness. I just want to talk a little bit about mountain biking because mountain biking seems to be a route that lots of successful Australian cyclists and cyclists overseas have gone down before they go to road cycling and 
I mountain bike a bit myself. Talk a little bit about mountain biking and how that that skill prepares you for road cycling. My career has kind of been defined by good timing in a lot of ways. So as a junior, I started on the road and track a little bit when I was about 12. So I had quite a few years as a road cyclist. And then when I was about 17, I was um, dating someone that was really into mountain biking and his best friend also was, and they kept dragging me out on the mountain bike. And at the time, there was a talent identification program called Dirt Roads to London, and that was a mountain bike program aimed at the London Olympics. And I was the minimum age that you were allowed to qualify for this program. So my mom drove me up a few times to Sydney to do the tryouts, and I kept getting through each round, and I managed to get into the program. So there was about 10 or 12 women in New South Wales and about the same number in Victoria And these squads were given a coach and we got to go to a lot of races nationally. And because I was the baby of the group, I was really well encouraged by the women. I guess they didn't see me as a threat at the time. So I actually had all of these amazing women being nice to me and supporting me. So I had this beautiful environment to step away from road. And so with many sports... The serious end of things sees a huge dropout rate in that age group of 18 to 23. And for me to go to a, 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 quote, a fun sport in that age time period of my life was like the best timing for me because I didn't have the pressure of trying to make it from under 19s in road cycling to open because there's no other age category. It's just you go straight into seniors and it's the level is just that little bit too high and a lot of people just just struggle and I know I would have struggled so for me to have gone into mountain biking had a lot of fun it gave me great skills I got stronger physically and I was lucky to be part of the national mountain bike team a few years later uh, when I was about 20 and we traveled all over the world for a whole year doing all of the world cup races so I was in the under 23 category mountain biking has that which is great and it was a perfect way for me to develop Uh, It was my first time overseas. I got to figure out how to travel and our coach also made us do all of our own mechanics. So I had to fix my bike and make sure it worked for every race. So that was also a great experience, not just to know how my bike worked, but also to learn how to be self-sufficient. And I think that when I carried that to the road, it was really important because I knew how to fix things myself. I knew how to travel I didn't have to ask for help too often and I feel like that's really important. A lot of road cyclists probably get babied a bit too much and they just feel like everything needs to be done to them. And it also made me really appreciate all the equipment I got. When you're a road cyclist, you get heaps of equipment, which is super cool. So even right at the end of my career, every time a new season rolled around and we got a whole new bag of clothes and a new bike, I would just be so stoked about it, that feeling that never went away. The self-sufficiency thing's really interesting because one would argue that lots of athletes that are in high-paid sports, they're mollycoddled. And certainly a number of athletes have spoken about that on this podcast and the fact that being in a position where you are responsible for yourself is a really good thing for an athlete from their development perspective. And, I mean, I think that if I look at all of the the people that have spoken on this podcast, there is this sense of you actually have to do it yourself. You've got all this structure around you, but at the end of the day, you're the one that needs to do the work and you're the one that needs to be responsible for 
your performance. And if you put that into context of preparing for life after sport, Gracie, I'm assuming that that mindset of being self-sufficient, being resilient, would have been really helpful in you working out that it was time to move on, but it would have also given you the confidence to take this gap year off because there would have been, I suspect, maybe some thoughts that, oh, actually, I actually need to get moving, whereas I think you're doing exactly the right thing, is taking a break, you're trying a few different things, and who knows where they might lead. Definitely. I completely agree with that self-sufficiency gave me that confidence to trust myself. And over the years in cycling, every time I did something for myself, it gave me that confidence that I could do it again. And same goes for instincts. Cycling is a really tactical sport and I raced my best when I trusted my gut and I raced on instinct instead of second guessing myself. And I really had to learn how to shift that skill into the rest of my life. So that self-sufficiency and trusting my gut, it's hard to learn, but I'm so glad that I've really tried to listen to myself every time I have a conflict in my mind I'm like okay well, why am I feeling like this how do I feel about this situation I'd like to overthink things sometimes I take a long time to make a decision but in a race you have to make a decision in a second you can't hesitate and so I've had to practice that in times outside of a race and it's so helpful it's made me realize that I can trust myself I am capable to do things I'm capable to do anything and I'm also I'll be okay if I get it wrong. <laughs> like it's, it's fine to be wrong and it's fine to fail. Well, I think the thing is, is everything can be looked at in two separate prisms. You can either look at it as being a failure or as being a learning opportunity. A bit like what you said with respect to retiring is a gift, not just a loss. It's the mindset and the, and the way that we want to just look at things which can actually help us grow and be better people. You talked about the instinct of the way that you rode. So you know, almost a year in since you retired, has your gut been right? What have you learned about the decision that you made knowing now? Is it the right one? Was it the right one? You never know for sure. I think life is just sliding doors all the time. I think you just have to accept that you've made a decision. I think that's the biggest thing. And when you're facing a decision, just that fear of like, what if I make the wrong choice? You'll never know if you made the right or wrong choice, really. Like sometimes you know because it blows up in your face, but usually you just won't know. So it's more just that acceptance of like, well, this is just a decision and I know moving forward I'll be able to handle what comes after that decision. And I think reframing it like that is really helpful instead of just being like right or wrong or this is the right way or that's going to fail. Like you just never know until you try and being paralysed by fear and not making a decision at all is worse than making a decision that might not have been the right one because at least you're moving forward. Yeah, that's right. And, and you mentioned in the article you wrote that you had spent time with people outside of the sport, either people that you might have met on a pro-am sort of cycling event where you're talking with CEOs and successful people outside of the sport some may become mentors. And can you talk a little bit about the conversations that you had with those types of people, especially when a lot of people like that are, you know, cycling so massive in Australia, obviously it's enormous in Europe where you spend a fair bit of your time. What are some of the things that you've learnt from those people who clearly would have loved to talk cycling about with you, whereas you're probably wanting to talk about 
their careers and what they've done and how they've got to where they've got to. Such a fascinating conversation sometimes that you have with highly successful people in things outside of sport because there is so much that you can relate about. Like I mentioned in my article, I did notice every now and again someone would say, oh, I take on a CEO role or I take on a big project for X amount of time, say five years, and then I take a six-month holiday or, or more. And Of course, they're very privileged. They probably can afford to do that. Obviously, you need a lot of money to take that much time off. But in another way, can you invest in yourself for that long? Can you – you might not have a lot of savings, but – can you invest in yourself to live a little bit more cheaply for a certain amount of time to give yourself that space to breathe? And for me, I'm not making much money at all this year. I tried to save up during my career, but the sacrifice I made this year was that I wasn't going to make much money, but I was going to have time to rest. And for me, the rest part has probably been the most important. You don't realise how exhausted you are after 10 years of trying to be the best in the world at something. Mentally, it took me months to feel like I wasn't, you know, struggling to get out of bed, even though I wasn't particularly depressed or anything, but you're just exhausted. And I feel like I would try to do something for an hour and I, that was it. Like I couldn't keep reading or I couldn't keep replying to emails or even socializing everything was exhausting but you kind of break through that after a few months and you slowly start building that energy back and that was really my biggest investment in myself this year was actually just time to do nothing (laughs) what sort of adjustment was that because going from professional cycling where you are consistently in motion both you know figuratively and and in actual reality to doing nothing or at least being in the position where you didn't have to. And clearly, just through this conversation, it's pretty clear that you're the type of person that's not just going to sit around and while away hours. Like a lot of professional athletes are really good at wasting time and just spending time doing nothing. You're clearly not like that. But what sort of mental adjustment did you have to make to realise that you didn't have to get out of bed at six o'clock to go riding? You might choose to because you you want to because you're cycling for fun as opposed to being on that constant sort of training competition cycle? It's really difficult and I've had countless days this year that I'm down on myself because I'm not being productive enough. It's really hard to separate my old self from my new self. Not that there's not much of a difference, but it's more just trying not to be so hard on myself. And because I was in a state of progress for my pretty much my whole life, and to then have that end, that's probably been one of the most difficult things to come to terms with is just not being in this state of progress anymore and not working towards something much bigger than you are now. So there was always these bigger goals for me, the Olympics or, or winning big races, even just getting fitter and improving my personal Vests in certain things. I'm not doing that anymore, so I have to find other ways to have those feelings back and also just accept that they're not there. Is that getting easier as each day goes by with respect to separating yourself from the professional athlete that you were? It does get easier, and one of the things that makes it easier, apart from self-reflection, is actually having good people around me, having a partner that, you know, doesn't expect me to have a job right now 
that supports me in chasing little things to figure out what I'm enjoying to do with my time, my parents that are not expecting me to go get a good job and, you know, there's no expectations on me from anything external and that's really helpful and I think a lot of people don't have that and I think that would be really difficult to feel that external pressure because I already feel it inside enough. I feel like, well, my partner's got this very high-level job. I should do that or my friends are really well paid because they've been working for, you know, 15 years already. I should do that and it's so hard to not always be thinking about that stuff so I'm really grateful that I'm not getting actually that pressure externally I'm, I have to acknowledge that it's only internal <laughs> well and I think that's it's no different in my experience from the corporate world there's lots of us out there I've certainly experienced it where you look at other people and you think about well you know maybe I should have done that or maybe I could do that and no one else is thinking that it's only us as individuals that that may be judging ourselves against others when in actual fact the only people we need to really worry about in that sense is ourselves and what makes us happy, what's going to provide us with a level of enjoyment, the ability to put food on the table and all of those sorts of things. Can we talk about for a second expectations and, you know, professional sport is pretty brutal and it's all about performance. So how do you marry up the expectations that those around you might have of you when you were cycling versus the expectations that you had by any measure, extremely successful at what you did. A couple of Australian titles, Olympian, World Championships, Australian Championships. I mean, from a cycling perspective, and you cycled professionally in Europe for over a decade. So every box would be ticked if you started off and maybe wrote what you were going to achieve back when you were started and then what you actually did achieve. So Can you talk a little bit about that and about the pressure of expectation and performance? It's really difficult and I actually got to talk to a young athlete recently that was really struggling with the performance of theirs that they were really disappointed about and it made me realise how far along I was mentally in in comparison to someone in their early 20s and they were feeling so much external pressure and judgement for their perceived poor performance and I realised that I have gained a lot of skill there in being able to separate that and in my career I could even see, you know, someone like Anna Mears, she's an absolute legend of cycling. She does track cycling but she's pretty much a household name in Australia but even then, like, you have to be an absolutely brilliant cyclist for anyone to even know who you are. Most listeners today won't know who I am. And, like, I have to be okay with that. Well, they will after this They will after this <laughs> conversation, Gracie, don't worry. Yeah, it's just interesting, though, like, you have the Olympics, for example, as, like, the be-all, end-all. Imagine if you got an Olympic gold medal, it would change your life. But it actually doesn't change your life unless you have meaning to it. Because if you believe that any external meaning to that medal is going to change your life, you're going to be very disappointed. And so for me, that really helped me realise that I needed to be proud of every performance I had because I was the only one that was going to remember it. No matter if I got first or last, I still had to be proud of it and remember it for myself because that was really the only thing that mattered. Sure, that there's a few people in my life, like my mum and dad, 
who will remember most of my races because they're just super proud of me and love me unconditionally. But everyone else in the world, even super cycling fans, you know, won't think about me much anymore that I've retired. But that doesn't diminish my career and my achievements. And that's identity. Lots of professional athletes struggle with retirement because they're no longer – they might no longer see themselves as a cyclist or a footballer or a cricketer or whatever, and other people do. And what sort of things have you done to not so much distance yourself from the professional cyclist, but there are more things in your life. There's more to Gracie Elvin than simply being a cyclist. Have you had to go through a process with respect to mentally distancing yourself so you've got not so much a new identity, but you can separate cycling from who you are now. And I was lucky as well with a few people in my life throughout my whole athletic career that helped me remember that I was Gracie, not Gracie the cyclist. So I had pre-prepared myself for almost my whole career to make sure that my identity wasn't completely tied to cycling. But having said that, I've been a cyclist for 20 years, so of course most of my identity is tied up in that. So retiring was still a huge shift in my identity and something I had to come to terms with, even though intellectually I already knew that. Emotionally, it's still different. (laughs) And to not wear my professional kit when I'm out training around my hometown roads and to not go to a race and, and to be on that side of the fence anymore, you know, like it is a big change in identity, but... Something that really helped me with my grieving process and even in those last few races that I did last year was realising I didn't need a fairy tale ending. I was more proud of how I did it rather than what I did and that's something that I can carry for the rest of my life is how I do things, how I am as a person, what my integrity is, how I'm kind to people, (laughs) like all of that kind of stuff. So... There's a lot of other things that I'm proud of and I like who I am, which is, it's nice. And I really miss Gracie the cyclist, but I still like Gracie the person. And I think that's it's an awesome answer because, you know, so many athletes don't like themselves when they finish and really, really struggle. And as a result, all sorts of things can happen to them which really challenge them for a long period of time as they work their way through that identity issue. You're still involved in cycling with the Cyclists Alliance. Before we wrap up, tell me a little bit about that because you started that, I think, five odd years ago as a union for female cyclists. Tell us a little bit about that and tell us what you're doing with the Cyclists Alliance. That's something that I'm really proud of and that goes back into how I did things. I feel like I have a strong moral compass sometimes and back in 2017, a really good rider who had just retired, a Dutch woman called Iris Slappendel, who I was friends with before she retired. We'd often chat in races in the lulls and in the neutral zones about, you know, what we thought could be better or what was working in women's cycling. I think we were both quite politically minded. And she approached me in the year that she'd retired and said, I'm thinking about beginning the first ever women's cycling union and I would love you to be involved. And it took me a few months of coaxing because I was a bit worried that it would take away from what I was trying to achieve as an athlete. But I knew in my heart that I couldn't actually say no. So herself and an American writer that had also just retired, Carmen Small, and myself banded together and we had a group of 
key advisors that helped us with the legal side of things and we started the yeah, the first ever independent women's cycling union outside of the confines of the International Cycling Federation, which was definitely not helping women's cycling at the time. So it was really important to us to start working with athletes and having the athletes' best interests at heart. You know, it's not just about money. In my opinion, a national feder or an international federation shouldn't be making a lot of money out of the sport. It's a poor basis of the economy. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> and we've grown ever since. So now we have a board of five members. We have a rider representative council of about eight riders. And we have just under 200 members who are registered professional cyclists. And we've been able to help many cyclists with legal reasons from contract negotiations all the way up to very serious topics such as abuse within teams. We've also been able to have key support in changing how some of the, the rules around women's cycling kind of has happened and we have helped improve contracts and environments within teams. We even have maternity leave now written into the highest level of contracts, which is really amazing to have that in women's sport. We have minimum salaries. Uh, what else? So many other things. I'm really proud of still being involved. I think we've made a huge difference already in women's cycling and we have an amazing supporter base too, actually, of non-racing people that just really want to support the improvement of women's cycling. And that's a, an amazing legacy that yourself and the two colleagues that you started it with have created for women's cycling because I, I imagine that as every year ticks by, this women's cycling in concert with the Cyclists Alliance, is going to continue to provide better conditions, better opportunities for those that come after you. So that's a, an enormous achievement and you should be congratulated for that. Now, I know we've got to wrap this up shortly and it's been a, a terrific conversation, so thank you so much for joining me today. One thing I ask every athlete who comes on this show, what would you tell your 20-year-old self about transition to life after sport if you knew then what you know now? Such a difficult question. I love it though because it's really nice to think back to my younger self and what she was like and what she was dreaming of. And look, you said it earlier in the podcast, like what I've achieved, I didn't really expect to achieve all of that, even though I now compare myself to people even have achieved even more, which is definitely a terrible thing to do. To reflect on everything I've done makes me really happy and proud. But what I would tell my younger self is, Think about how you measure success and it's not about race results. And I might get a bit emotional here. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, in my last in my last race, having like world champions and people that I admire come and pat me on the back and say, You did so good and you've done so much for the sport. That was better than any race win. Gracie Elvin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone, to the latest episode of the Wide Open Road podcast. I'm grateful to each and every one of you for tuning in and for the wonderful support my guests have provided. Their stories are unique, inspiring and powerful, and I'm sure people from all walks of life will take a myriad of learnings about transitioning to the next phase of their lives. Whether that be a professional athlete, a soldier, or perhaps someone who has decided they needed a change of career in order to find out what they were put on this earth to truly do. As in the words of Mark Twain, 
The two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. As the Wide Open Road has evolved, it has become even clearer to me the power of stories. And if you or a friend would like to share your story, please reach out to me at edward-kemp at bigpond.com. Thank you for listening. Please stay safe. I look forward to bringing you more inspiring and uplifting stories in two weeks' time.